welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Interviews, where I get to dig into delicious conversations with global leaders. And I get to ask about women in leadership and hear their stories and soak up their wisdom and their perspective on life and leadership. And today I am thrilled to welcome Anne Rhodes. Anne, it's so wonderful to have you join me today. It's a great pleasure. I love it. So I am going to touch on your bio briefly and then we'll jump into our conversation. So Anne is, uh, is incredible. He's a dynamic and visionary corporate executive who's worked across a variety of service-based industries. She's president of People Inc., her own company that helps organisations create unique workplace cultures based on values and performance. So she held positions during her career as the vice president of people for Southwest Airlines, she worked for the Primus Hotel Corporation, which included a range of organisations, including Doubletree, and then most recently was the Executive Vice President of People for JetBlue Airways. Anne works on a number of boards today, and her book, Built on Values, was released in 2011. I feel so privileged to have you here with us, and Anne, I'm going to ask you straight away, for anyone in our audience who hasn't had the pleasure of coming across you before, would you share who you are as a human being and, and some of your story for us? Of course, love to. Well, it started as I was the oldest of seven children, so early on, my father was very clear that I could be a doctor or a lawyer, but I couldn't, he never brought up CEO now that I think about it, but I could be, or president of the United States. But it, it was really fun being the oldest of seven and also having a father who was so adamant that it wasn't about male, female, it was about your own competencies and, and your own talents and your IQ and all the things that matter when you're um, being taught as a child that you can do anything. And my father was very good at that with all seven of us. But years ago, when you think about when I started, uh, most women were being told that they could be teachers or nurses perhaps, but my dad never even brought that up. It was um, physician or attorney, but those were the only two choices. What a so, gift. What a gift. It was a great gift. And he was, of course, and is still one of my heroes. And I'm sorry we lost him years ago, but. He was always after me to do whatever I wanted to do. He always said, there are absolutely no opportunities that you will be given that you couldn't handle and you ought to go for everything. He was, he always called me when I took a new position and talked about how wonderful it was gonna be, how great it was that they were offering me a job when he didn't know too many women. He bragged about us to everyone. I still meet people that say, your dad talked about each one of you all the time and how accomplished you were. So as the oldest of seven, what I did was I, he told me also I had to get a scholarship to college because I didn't have a choice, right? Um, and so I went to the University of New Mexico. I started there, but I actually ended up finishing at a, a private Catholic college. Um, I was seven, our family was Catholic. And so I went to a Catholic college to finish, but I finished my MBA at the University of New Mexico where I met my husband um, years later. And during that time, I actually started in pre-med because, of course, my father had told me I had to. Um, and I ended up not enjoying it. So I switched. I was working for a company at the same time. I was working for Avis Rent-A-Car at the airport. And they made me a manager of the airport. And I loved it. I loved managing people. I loved all the people, various people you would meet in the various um, 
organizations and I met so many business people coming in and renting cars and we I would walk them to the car and they told me all about uh, corporations and they said you need to come work in the world of business so I switched my major to MBA in business and finance with a minor in strategic planning and I finished my MBA and tried to finish my JD with it for my father of course but didn't quite complete it and finished my MBA um, I went to work for banks because at that time, anyone with an MBA in finance went to work for a bank and I enjoyed it. I was in the financial area in the common, I ran a common trust fund for a bank. Um, and what happened, I was put on their high pro. They wanted some women that could be bank presidents to be in a very strong um, movement. Uh, you actually moved from, you, you were given the opportunity to run banks, small banks and small branches and then you would eventually move up to be president of a bank. But I didn't love doing it. While I was there, I, I really started working in the marketing area and I loved marketing. And because I really am, I know people say it and don't mean it, but I am a people person. Being the oldest of seven, I had to be, I had to convince them to do things every single day, right? Mm -hmm. um, so <laughs> I loved it. I loved the marketing area. So I was given marketing. Um, I still stayed in the HIPO program because you could move up to be the head of marketing in a very large corporation. It was a large company. And then I also was given the people side and I fell in love with managing people and with leading the organization on training and development and all the things that are important to an organization. So I had marketing and people and loved it and also got to serve in various capacities on the board and learned everything there was about banking. He still made me go run branches and still do marketing and, and HR, but I fell in love with HR. And then I moved to Dallas, Texas. My husband took a position there and I ended up meeting Herb Kelleher, Southwest Airlines. Um, he was on the board and it's only private board. I was in a large bank in Texas and we were going through a tough time in real estate. He was on the board and he asked me to come upstairs and the board asked me to come up and make a presentation to him. And when I came up, one of the individuals in the board meeting, it was all male. In fact, at that point, one of them said, who invited the skirt in here? Wow. It was right. It was just that time 30 years ago. And so I made it, I started to stand up to make my presentation and the individual to my left, a man said, don't stand up. And I said, okay, maybe they don't do that in this meeting. So then they went to leave though. And I went to stand up to shake their hands and he said, don't stand up. And I thought, this is crazy. So after everyone left the room, I turned to him and said, what was that about? And he said, you have toilet paper coming out of the back of your suit. I didn't want to be embarrassed. Her, and that's how I met him. And I got to work for him and probably the, one of the best leaders ever in this country um, in an organization. He built Southwest. When I went to Southwest, we had 4,000 people. He wanted me to change the culture and to make it a place that everyone wanted to work. We did become a place that everyone wanted to work. When I left, we had 24,000 people. Today, they have 54. And I left there to go work for Doubletree Hotels, which was a large hotel chain. But while I was there, we did seven M&A. Um, we, we bought seven different companies. And so we grew to 85,000 with the final one was a merger with a very large hotel company. and. While I loved it, we spoke 26 languages. We had women on the board when women weren't typically on a board. We had tons of senior women 
And I was the only female EVP, but there were other women that were senior vice presidents and were moving up. It was a great environment. Um, hospitality is still a great environment, I think, for, for women. There are lots of women that are CEOs of, of hotel companies today. Mm -hmm. And so it was great because I worked for two different people who were all about moving myself up and other women. I was very blessed. I did not have, whenever it came to, for instance, salary increases, um, all the women were equal to the men. It was very interesting in a time 25 years ago when that wasn't per particularly happening everywhere. Absolutely. And you know, the hotel company wanted me to go on to lead one of our hotel companies, but I didn't really want to do that in the interim. Then David Nealman came to me and said, you've got to come to New York and help me build JetBlue. So five of us started JetBlue. I was one of them and I had the service side. So I had flight attendants and I had the HR side and the learning and development and the training, which in the airline world is huge. And we started with five of us and we ended up today, they have 25,000 people. And I just went off the board after 20 years and really enjoyed it, but started my own company. At the same time, I was going to JetBlue. I had just started my own company. I was tired of large companies. So I started my own company with 10 people I handpicked and we created People Inc. and we've been in business 20 years and we were facilitators for building very strong cultures around a set of values, which we think really is the way to build a company. And, and so you and, I, um, you and I were lucky to meet um, in the US last year when I was over there. And um, at the time um, we were at a conference for the Great Game of Business and the wonderful Jack Stack introduced you and I, and I'm actually interviewing him as part of this series. So you and I share a deep um, passion for values-based organisations. I, I mean, your experience is extraordinary uh, when you talk about you know, your time at Southwest, I love that story with her, with toilet paper in the back of your skirt. That's an absolute classic. I wondered what was coming. Um, I just I just would love to dig into with you as a starting point, what makes an extraordinary leader? When you call her out as one of the most extraordinary leaders, what comes to mind when you when you talk about that? Well, he epitomizes the servant leader model. In fact, I swear that the title um, was given to him early on, and he was the best example of a, to me, of a servant leader that I've ever worked for. He was strategically brilliant and tactically. Usually a leader has one or, or other of those competencies. He had both. It was very interesting because he was an attorney by profession. He came to Southwest because they owed him 100000 after he helped them get the right to fly out of uh, Love Field in Dallas, Texas. And so as an attorney, they owed him money. Well, instead he went on the board and when they needed a CEO, he filled that role. Mm -hmm. And so what I watched about him and what I thought was wonderful was he never ever did not take the a 360 view of something. So he not only looked at the financial side of one of the events that we, was occurring, he would look at the people side and the effect on the people and the customers. He was an incredibly charismatic individual. He had a photogenic me memory. So he would, for now we had 25,000 employees when I left and I was still traveling with him a bit. He never forgot a name. And not only did he remember the name of the employee, he remembered their children's name if he had wow. heard it. And so he purposely went out of his way and he used a sense of humor in everything he did. 
because it was tough at Southwest. They were not doing well for a period of time. And when I got there, everything that could possibly happen, happened. Um, we didn't have enough pilots. Um, we had desert storm. We had all kinds of things happening that uh, really could have taken down an airline that was still on the fringes of making it. Mm -hmm. But because of his leadership, people followed him. Our turnover, we paid 10% below market and yet we had one of the lowest turnovers in the industry. And when people were interviewed, they said they want to work there and that's why they never left. They had numerous offers. I had an offer a week almost, literally, and yet didn't even go interview because I really enjoyed coming to work there every so day. JetBlue was, I guess, a, a chance to, to build from the beginning. Uh, what attracted you to do that? So David Nealman had asked me to come build it from and exactly what you're talking about. I saw Southwest in action, but it was already in place. And Herb had been there for years when I got there. So the values had been defined, the behaviors of the leaders were all consistent around a set of those values. And I wanted to start from scratch and show that we could really do the same thing from the beginning and wanted to be part of that and wanted to do it in difficult environments. Uh, New York is extremely difficult. Uh, customers complain about everything. When David said, you have to build a company that everybody's going to love in New York, I said, do New Yorkers love anything? Oh. <laughs> but they love JetBlue. We now are their favorite airline. And that's all because by design, three of the five of us that started it came out of Southwest. And so we, what we had learned from Herb and we put in a servant and, and David Nealman, to his credit, is excellent at it too. So, I mean, he believed in it. He had been at Southwest. He knew and loved the model. So we put in the model, it had five parts. The first part is you have to define who you want to be. So we sat in a room in New York when there, we invited four other people. There were nine of us. We had some marketing um, players that were with us and we invited one prospective employee and we sat in the room and we said, who do we want to be when we grow up? And we wrote the paragraph that we hoped would be written about us five years from now in the Wall Street Journal. And it happened. And we defined five values and the reciprocal behaviors. And today, every single one of those 25,000 employees can tell you what those are. On the beginning of the day, all the values go across the screen. They're evaluated on those. I ran the comp committee for the board for 15 years. And we evaluated the CEO first on not the results, but how did you get the results? Did you get on the backs of your employees or in the backs of customers? Or did you get it the right way? And the right way to us, by definition, was making sure that your employees were happy first, then your customers, because without happy employees, you won't have great customers, right? And so we defined those values and behaviors when we started. We then built a hiring model that was all about hiring, not just for competencies, but also for values. And then we rewarded people around how they got results, coupled with the results, but around how they got the results. And last but not least, we made sure every single employee represented our brand and knew the numbers and knew the goals. There's not an employee at Southwest, at JetBlue or Southwest that don't know the metrics and don't know what the goals are. Fantastic. So, and I want to go back into points in your career and I want to ask you, was there an aha moment in your own career where you sort of became more intentional about the direction of your career? Like, would you call anything out in particular? 
So when I was in the bank in Texas, um, I was the first promoted senior vice president was a female. And so I went to work with the president on the annual reviews of people, including one female who was outstanding. And her review was the top review um, that was given to anyone, including all the males that were her peers. The president decided to give her the lower increase rather than the higher increase. And I said, what is this about? Why are you doing that? And he said, well, the other men have to support a family and she has someone who supports her. And I said, if you don't change that, I am going to quit. And I would have walked because at that moment, I made sure that from then on, I was going to be supporting women. And I think women need to support women. And I had a great opportunity to do it. And several after that, and every single time um, I got them to change their mind, because I don't think sometimes men do it knowingly. And certainly he was a good guy and he went on to be CEO of many different bank holding companies. Mm -hmm. And I think he had the values. I don't think he knew it. I don't think he saw the effect of what he was doing. I think it's fascinating what you say and there because quite often HR roles, you know, have a have a, a reputation of sorts as potentially being a softer kind of area within the business. Um, and in fact, a number of senior HR leaders that I talk to have kind of grown up in a position of having or being there to give advice, not necessarily to make decisions. Um, Whereas I think you and I agree that actually the new sort of HR or new people leader is a very strategic voice for the organisation. Can you talk about, I mean, number one, do you agree with that? And then secondly, how have you been that voice throughout your career? It's very interesting. I have sat in board meetings since I was, well, for 20 some years on in the boards of the companies I was in as a head of HR. I never liked the term HR. We moved it to people. I never thought that it was anything but a customer service and marketing job. And I think that most HR players think that it's a job where you keep them out of a trouble, you know, out of lawsuits. It's the wrong way to look at it. I've always been a strategic partner, but I also always understood finance. And I think sometimes we get HR players in positions where they will be in meetings and not speak up because perhaps they they don't think they have the competency to speak up. And that's not true. I mean, I totally believe you have to be a partner they listen to or you shouldn't be there. And I will fight HR players all the time when they say, well, they don't listen to me. Well, there's a reason you need to stand up. You need to talk uh, when there is something you disagree with, for God's sake, tell people. And in the role that you're in, never report to anyone but a CEO. If the CEO is not the person you report to as a head of people, then you don't want that job. A lot for historically, HR players have reported to um, CFOs. I haven't because I wouldn't take the job. Mm. And early on in my career, I knew that I wanted to report to the person that could make a difference and who would listen to me. If you report all the way down the chain, you're never going to be listened to. And you also know something about it when you go to take the job. If they don't tell you you're going to report the CEO, you know then that they don't appreciate the job like they should. They just don't. They haven't had a person in it that perhaps um, spoke up and that wasn't afraid to tell them what they thought. I had another uh, time when we were 
purchasing a, we were, it was actually M&A, the largest M&A that Doubletree ever did. It was a merger. And at the time of the merger, they were making some last minute promotions because of people that had made sure it had been done. And they were <clears throat> giving recognition to three men, but two of the women had been great and had helped us. And I went into the CEO's office and said, you have to promote them too, because it will make a total difference if they were to let go on severance for, it makes a difference on their salary. It makes a difference on everything, um, the stock. And he said, no. And I said, well, then I am leaving and I won't be part of it. And I knew the board wanted me to be part of it. And so I walked out and went home. He came to my home that night with his wife. Mm -hmm. She told him that couldn't happen. And I will tell you, you have to be willing. I think many, and you know, I don't know the reason, but many HR players have been, have not had courage. And I think you have to have courage. And that courage is one of the critical elements of any leader. And it doesn't matter where you are, you have to have the courage to speak up mm -hmm. and you have to have the courage to be willing to take the consequences if they in fact don't agree with you. And so maybe I, like I don't know. I want to ask you about that. Um, you know, how have you ever struggled to have your voice heard? Mm hmm. I have been. I'm trying to think there was a board I was on at one point that I left because people weren't listening to me when I talked about what some of the um, consequences were of, the, of their positions mm -hmm. and they weren't listening. So I quit while well, they had a new chairman brought in who had worked with me before and got me back on the board. He insisted I come back to the board and I did go back two years later. Um, but at the point, that point, I wasn't going to be able to affect what was happening either with the chairman of the board or the CEO. And so I just left the board. But I did go back when a CEO that had worked with me asked me to come back. But we had a whole different situation then. But there had, that is the time I remember not being listened to because they really, frankly, weren't paying attention to the human side and the effect of some of their actions on the people of that organization and even the customers. And later on, they regretted it. And the CEO was like, oh, and that's when I was brought back okay. to help get the new CEO. Let me take a brief pause from listening to the podcast for a minute, just to check in and see if the conversation's inspiring any new thoughts or any new reflections for you. I hear so often from people in our audience, largely successful and senior professional women, how much they are craving some inspiration into their lives. I would just love to share with you, if you're looking for some, then come and sign up for our Sunday Inspiration email series. You can find a link in the show notes at the end of the show. Now let's get back to the podcast. So and, um, we know that you mentor a lot of senior female leaders um, and continue to kind of give back in that way. Can I just ask, you know, I'm deeply fascinated uh, why there are not more female CEOs. So having been a CEO, you know, I understand what an incredibly sort of humbling but challenging and rewarding role that it can be, and I would love to see more women aspire to it. Can I just ask your thoughts and opinions on, on that? Well, first of all, I don't think it's something that parents typically um, suggest to their child. So I had a CEO of a um, PE firm the other day and he called me and he said, my daughter, Anne, I want to convince her she has to be 
a strong professional and she, I want her to do really well. I tell her she can be the president of the United States. I said, you're working with CEOs. Why don't you tell her she can also be a CEO? You know what's interesting? I don't know many people who give that to their daughter as an option, right? Mm -hmm. I think we need to start young and talk to these young women and talk to them about the potential of being a CEO, not just being the president of the United States or not just being a strong engineer or not just being a great doctor. Those are all wonderful ideas. But, but I also think that in the world of business and in the world, even regardless of, of where you are, what your profession is, you ought to think about the top job. CEO, president, whatever the top job is in that organization. But I don't know that we always suggest it. And I think we should do it from the time they're young. I tell my nieces that all the time. And um, we talk about it. And one of them is going to be the CEO of her own organization, design company. Um, and I think that's because we've talked about it from the time she was little. Mm -hmm. you... I don't know. That's not the only reason, obviously. But that is one thing I've really been thinking about. Yeah. We were talking the other day and you and I were talking about the number of senior women uh, leaving the workforce right now. Can I just ask you about that? You know, the subject, I think, of, of burnout is a very real live issue for a range of people. I just love your perspectives on that whole area and potentially what organisations can do to help. Obviously, we have to listen to why. So I have a friend who's a head of marketing for a very large organization and they've asked her to move up, but they told her she needs to come back to the workplace and be present five days a week. And she's working 12 hours. She's not ever working eight hours. Well, she's even working when she goes home, but she stays at the office 12 hours. One of the things she found out during COVID is she enjoyed being home and being able to take the children to school. Her little one, she has three. Um, take them to school and pick them up on occasion, not all the time. She has a nanny, of course, but uh, someone who can do that when she can't do it because of meetings. I had another um, very, very senior um, counsel who called me from a very large organization and said, I want to have my second child. They want me to move up in the organization, but they're telling me I have to be on site five days a week. And she said, I'm going to tell them I can't do that. I said, well, tell them you can't do it. And she said, and they want me for meetings at seven when I can take my daughter to school. At least I can do that even if they have to be in sight. I said, you need to tell them. They need to start listening to what you want. Well, the council did, and they did listen to her, and she's going to be able to stay home Monday and Friday. And so she's going to be in the office three days a week. That's what they decided, and they mutually came to an agreement. And she's going to get to move up to senior. And you know, sometimes it's they have to listen to you. If you're if you're really competent and they really want to move you, then they should be willing to be flexible with some of the issues that are really important to you. And I think more women found that out. I've talked to you about how concerned I am that so many are not coming back, but maybe it's because they haven't asked for what it is they need to keep them happy. I want our people to be happy. I mean, one of the reasons we've been virtual in my company for 20 some years is because they were raising small children. They had a spouse that sometimes got transferred. They lived all over the country. And for 20 years, we have had a great time. Anyone could live anywhere they wanted and they could have the hours they wanted as long as the customer was happy and they agreed. It's, it's worked beautifully for us in our company. Now we're small. 
but it works. And But at JetBlue, we have 4,000 customer service agents who have been virtual for 23 years. Okay. And we have the highest rating, by the way. Say that again. We have the highest customer sat rating. For 13 years, we've won the JD Power Award. And they're all, all the majority, let me, not all, are young mothers who started with us and said, you know, we have children at home. We started our first res center was not center, our first reservation place that we put in was um, Salt Lake City. So there were a lot of young Mormon moms who wanted to be, have access to their, be home for the kids. And we said, okay, but then you can bid the hours that work for you, but, and you can work from home and we'll set you up at home, but just make sure you're in a quiet area. So we gave them the parameters and we have the lowest turnover and we had the highest ratings last time I looked of any customer survey group. And now I just heard from Southwest today that they've sent them all home. Okay. All the customer service agents are now virtual and they said it's really working. This woman I talked to today said it was really working. So I'm actually, I think it's something that you should be willing to speak up for when you talk about brave feminine leadership, speak up for what you need, ask them um, what you need to give and what they are willing to give to make it happen. I don't understand why we can't work together on this. I do think that during COVID more women saw the value of spending more time with the family. Mm -hmm. I think that's a given. There's not an article that comes out that they don't talk about that. And to their credit. And if you had a point in your career where your confidence kind of faltered yourself, then how did you navigate that? Probably lots of times. <laughs> you know, whenever you have a new position, and I uh, took several new ones in different organizations that I really obviously didn't know about um, until I took the position or didn't really know the organization. So I go in and make sure that I learn as much as I can, as fast as I can. And one of the ways to do that is to stay in the field the first 30 days. Whatever job you take, I'm whatever position, don't just go to the headquarters, learn the operation, learn what the company is about. Today at JetBlue, we have our new head of people and our new head of operations or whatever area you're in, you go to the field first. And the reason I say that is A, you're you're talking to people and learning things you would never learn sitting in a headquarters. And secondly, you are immediately watching and learning from customers and from the people what's going on, and it will really help you tremendously. There was a rule at Southwest that we put in at JetBlue. Every quarter, the officers have to spend a day in the field. And you need to come back and have a conversation at the board meeting or the management meeting about what you learned from the employees and what you learned from the customers that day. And I will tell you, it keeps information from being homogenized, you know, where you hear this overview on something, but you don't really know if it's accurate. You go get the information yourself. You learn a lot. And I think leaders, that's part of being a servant leader, is out there learning firsthand what's going on. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. That's so fascinating to me because one of the things that uh, I also grew up in a customer service style culture, so very used to getting feedback, feedback from teams, feedback from customers, um, giving feedback and, and receiving feedback. 
And one of the things that surprised me when I got exposed more broadly to a whole range of corporate environments was that I actually think there's a feedback crisis. I think it's really difficult for people to get really good feedback, and I'm not sure people are asking for really good feedback. Do you see that across? I mean, you work with a whole range of different businesses. What do you see? There are businesses who don't get feedback, and I think it's a mistake. And if I'm on the board, I always push for feedback from both customers and employees. I think today, though, it is more common to get more feedback. At JetBlue, we are doing it much more frequently than we used to do. And the one question that matters is how long do you intend to stay with the organization? Because if you can move that from two to five years, which today is a miracle, by the way, because young people tend to move faster. If you can move that as a leader, it not only enhances, I think, the customer experience because you have people that know the job, you know, and have learned more. But it also enhances to me the entire operation because you're going to be more efficient and I think probably more profitable um, because you're going to have a greater level of competency there. So I am fanatical over that one question. And the one question we ask customers is, would you recommend JetBlue to family and friends to fly? And that is also a critical question. And it's really, those are the two most critical questions um, that we ask. And so you don't, what I don't like about feedback instruments today, have you seen them where you answer one question, you get 10 more? Mm -hmm. They say it's only going to take five minutes. It's never five minutes. And it gets so frustrating that you that people are asking so many questions when, in fact, I think five or six questions should get you the data you need. And why wouldn't everybody do that in a fairly frequent basis? Can I bring it more to an individual, though? So to, you know, to an employee with their direct manager, um, you know, there's a lot of research that talks about women are less likely to get direct feedback that is actionable, that they can kind of do something with to help them grow. Do you, you know, what are your thoughts on that in terms of the capability of leaders to give feedback and the feedback that's being given? We do training on it and we teach them how to have those critical conversations mm -hmm. and the earlier, the better. So when you have someone and you see them doing something that isn't quite um, what, how you would like it handled in your organization, you need to immediately have that conversation. And what's interesting, and we've watched leaders, both females and males, once they start giving that feedback and they see a difference in, uh, they observe a difference in performance, they tend to do it more frequently. Mm -hmm. We believe you do it in the first 30, 60 and 90 days and you frequently give it to them. Whenever you see them behave in a way that is either positive or negative, you can quickly change the behaviors instead of waiting. I don't think annual reviews work anymore. I think reviews should be consistent and it should be a conversation. The Juniper Network started calling it a conversation day instead of a review day. Mm -hmm. And they go back and forth and say, this is what, how we typically would like to see it done. This is what I observed you did. Um, this is the feedback I'm getting from the people that work with you, your peers. This is what I think we'd like to see, or you did, wonderful job let's keep up doing the wonderful job right but critical conversations are hard they're not easy mm -hmm. um, but we've taught people and we have classes on critical conversations now with our leaders and it's all under the leadership development program but i think it's a really important part of it and when you're a brand new supervisor or leader you get that at JetBlue and at many of the companies i'm working with there 
their leadership development programs include critical conversations. How do we have them and how do we make sure they're effective? And also we use 360s. So those employees also give you feedback as a leader on whether or not they feel that they are learning from you and, and developing into competent players. And can I ask, it's a very challenging environment for a lot of leaders right now. Um, you know, you hear people are sort of busier than ever and are finding leadership challenging um, with the challenges of finding people, retaining people um, in this sort of environment. I just wonder if you could just share, um, you know, I think leadership, it's possible to really feel joy in leading other people. I just wonder if you can share some tips with people on how if they might not be feeling joy in their leadership right now, how they might be able to revive that or find that. So I believe in more frequent communication because I think you get the joy out of hearing from your people that they are enjoying their job too, right? So I tell leaders that if you are in a virtual situation, you may need to put on your calendar because what matters to a leader is what's on their calendar. You need to put on your calendar a conversation with your direct reports once at least every other week. And you need to talk to them and you need to, if you can, physically meet with them periodically because that's what builds loyalty. And loyalty is what keeps leaders happy. You have great people working for you and you hear from others and you hear from customers how great the environment and how great the outcomes the customers have experienced is all of a sudden you're happy. I mean, I think what makes us happy is when we see everyone performing and creating these great products that, that we produce, right? I think joy comes from seeing people develop and seeing people really almost bounce into work, right? Have you ever looked at an airport and watched Southwest people and JetBlue people, and they are smiling as they walk through the airport. I watch it all the time, and the majority of them are always smiling. I, as a leader, love to see people. Um, this week, for instance, I'm in Albuquerque, but we have a client here, and so two of my team members, partners, are coming in this week, and every time they come in, we have dinner each night. They're there. We have we talk about what's going on, and I always have little surprises for them, and they always tell me that they can't wait to come back. I think the joy is in really seeing your people happy. Servant leaders really care about making it a great place to work for the people that work for them. And I think you can do that by listening to them and trying to deliver whatever it is they need, whether it's more training, whether it is better hours, whether it is sometimes, you know, you're out of sync on your salary and your benefits. Figure out what it is and try to deliver because that's what gives you joy. If your people are happy, you're happy. Or I am. Let me just say I am. But I think the majority of leaders absolutely love seeing their people excited about doing their job and see them coming in and raving about the company. I don't know. What do you think? That's what I think. <laughs> I do. I think, you know, I think what I hear from people is that they're so busy right now, they're often not making that a priority. And that, when I get them to do it, they totally tell me they changed. Yeah. But they aren't making it a priority. And one of the things, and I will always say this, the greatest leaders are great listeners. And if you ever had to be a listener and be empathetic, it's now. There's not a survey coming out. If you read the Wall Street every day, that doesn't say the greatest trait right now a leader can have 
is not sitting in their office and thinking, whoa, whoa, what am I going to do? My people, I can't recruit, I can't retain. Well, you can't recruit and retain because you're not a great place to work. If you don't create that great place to work and people want to be there, then you have a problem. Yeah. And that problem only escalates if you don't do something about it. But if you call your A players and you personally go see them when they're on the job, my brother is a builder and he, a large building company and he runs projects for them. And so it was his, his 10th anniversary and his leader came from out of town. It took a couple hours for him to drive there and brought him something small. The gift was not what it was about. He came to personally say, thank you for doing a great job. This project is incredible and you're delivering. He raves about it. It's the only thing he does. I don't even know what the gift was, but what I know is that he came out of, went out of his way to come and to say thank you. I mean, how simple. So simple. And I would sort of add to what you're saying there because I think it's great advice about making sure it's on your diary. But, you know, I think great leadership is also about great discipline. And so it's not getting distracted from that as your number one. That's right. You know, Herb was a great example. He had, and really a JetBlue, Dave Barger, who was the president, was a great example. He put on his calendar every other week, flying with the pilots one day. He'd go from city to city to city, and he would do it sometimes on weekends when he was free, but he would do it. And if you have that discipline to constantly call, like I, I definitely call my people once a week, and having that discipline, granted, I don't have that many, but most people don't have more than 10 direct reports anyway. If you call them and you have that discipline, you're going to, first of all, if they're thinking about anything like leaving, you're going to hear about it. Because you built that loyalty where they will even tell you if they're making a decision that if it's hard for them, but you can help. We say that you have to get within to someone who's resigning within 24 hours and you have to move it up one level. So at JetBlue, when you hear an A player is resigning, you move it to the director above or to the and the president would call certain people when when one of the directors or VPs called them and said, you got to save this player for me, they would do it. And we had a high percentage of saves and many people told us they just felt like they weren't being listened to or they weren't, nobody cared about them. And they were, and we really saved people that way, but it ended up being a 101 model for leadership, not a 501 grad school course. Listening now is so incredibly important and empathetic, being empathetic. And can I ask you, um, and you, you went there a little bit earlier as well, but can I just ask from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership mean and do you think it needs to change? I don't think that it needs to change. I think we need to be cognizant of the fact that we need to take um, the time to speak up and never be afraid to say what we believe. And maybe it will be a contrarian view but you need to give it and you need to, I think we bring something to the table during this time. And again, I've talked about empathetic, but women bring a balance. I don't like working on a board that's all male or female or organization. And I, I like working together, but the piece we bring is an empathetic. I mean, we listen because we understand family issues and this is a critical time for that and being brave, to me, just simply means having the courage to say what you believe. And will they always listen? Probably not. 
um, but will they listen the majority of the time today? It is incredible. And their men are telling me that women have added a balance during COVID and that they particularly go ask them now for their advice on some of these issues because it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's never been harder in my history, at least. Um, and what I remember, it's never been harder to be a leader than when you can't get the talent to do the job and you can't retain those A players you have because everybody's recruiting the same A players, right? Absolutely. How you do it is you need to start listening and women will bring a different set of advice to me. Having been, I heard it this week at a board meeting we were at in DC. Um, the other, we have two female board members on our board and I just love it. And she brought, uh, the other board member brought up something I wouldn't have ever thought about. And certainly the men didn't think about it, but it was just great. She had an idea on resolving a customer issue that was just outstanding. And and she spoke up because she knew that they wouldn't think of it. So. And thank you so much for joining our conversation. Um, You know, you've had and continue to have an extraordinary career. And I think you demonstrate you know, the power of being prepared to put your voice forward and then also take a stand um, on issues that really matter. So thank you so much and thank you so much for joining our conversation. Thank you for having me. It was great. And that was the end of another podcast conversation. So thank you so much for listening to the episode today. I often hear from leaders who felt inspired by the conversations and are ready to put themselves first. And so I wanted to take a brief moment just to share how I've helped hundreds of women just like you become crystal clear on the exact steps they should be following right now to lead an intentional and sustainable life without second guessing themselves so that they can maximize their influence and impact. I've put some details into the show notes and there's a link there where you can find out some more about our signature Elevate and Influence program. While you're there, take the time to sign up for our Sunday Inspiration email series. Have a brilliant day.